Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. We are in one of our biggest battles ever for this nation and the direction whether this next century will be ours. Republicans only need a handful of seats to win control of the U.S. House of Representatives in 2022, and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is determined to make that happen. But McCarthy has to toe a really tricky line as he tries to secure the House for the GOP and secure a likely speakership for himself. He has to convince donors and some members of the party that he can stand up to an unpredictable former President Trump. And he has to do that without breaking the delicate bond he's built with the man who still holds such power over the Republican Party. McCarthy believes that he, uniquely, can strike that ideal balance and deliver election wins to the GOP in the next two cycles. So, can he? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. Washington Post politics reporter Michael Shearer recently co-wrote with reporter Josh Dossie a story looking at McCarthy's political aspirations and his motivations. I got to the heart of my questions for Michael first. McCarthy claims that he can restore the Republican Party's power in Washington and that he can do that without destroying his relationship with Trump or with donors. So I had to ask, can he do that? Well, that's not a clear binary, yes or no, because he can fail sometimes and win other times and then declare success or or, or vice versa. Um, so politics as usual. <laughs> yeah, politics as usual. I think, you know, the, the first thing that we'll be able to count and know for sure is whether he can retake control of Congress in the midterm elections next year. And he's a handful of seats away from doing that. He's got redistricting on the side. He's got a sitting Democratic president who's rather unpopular right now. So I think the odds are right now, and a lot can change in the next year, that McCarthy is positioned to lead Republicans back into power in the House next year. And if he does that, what are his chances of being elected Speaker of the House by his colleagues? On that count, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that he probably will. Now, a lot can change. There are some members of the sort of diehard Trump community who have been arguing that President Trump should be the speaker because you can actually appoint a speaker who's not a sitting member of Congress, uh, which would be uh, you know, delightful for political reporters like me, but is unlikely to happen. It's possible that other candidates step forward. Steve Scalise is well liked in the caucus. But as it stands right now, according to our reporting, there really isn't anybody else who's come forward. And in fact, a lot of the people who have historically been rivals to McCarthy have fallen in line behind him and are saying they're going to support him. Most notably, Jim Jordan, the sort of firebrand Ohio congressman who is often on television railing against liberals and defending Donald Trump. He said very clearly, after running against McCarthy for the minority leader slot, that he's going to support McCarthy for speakership. So I'm still recovering from your suggestion that the Speaker of the House does not, in fact, need to be a member of the House. Would that be unprecedented? Have we seen that happen before in history? I, 
I don't think we have. I, I don't think also that that is, I, I didn't mean to suggest it as a likely outcome. You know, the scenario in which that becomes an issue is one in which you have a few members of Republican members and outside groups who start saying it more loudly next year, the sort of Steve Bannons of the world. And then Trump says something to entertain the possibility, which then ignites it to a whole new level. But there isn't really any indication at this point that Trump would want that. And it's, it's not something that would ever happen unless he really wanted it. And even if he did really want it, I think there would be a lot of resistance among Republican members in the House, not all, but, but many of them, which could be the sort of thing that would dissuade anyone from wanting to go forward with it. Right. I mean, in the past five years of making this show, I have learned so many loopholes within the setup of our American government. It's totally fascinating. But anyway, if these two things happen, if Republicans take back the House and McCarthy becomes speaker, what shape might the GOP take at that point? So if those first two dominoes fall, then the question is, can Kevin McCarthy keep the Republican Party a coherent enough body to put it in a position that a Republican gets elected president two years later in 2024. And I think that is a much harder question to uh, project at this point. President Trump is a unpredictable, defiant leader who continues to have enormous sway over the party, is basically controls the small dollar fundraising apparatus of the party, lost rather badly in presidential campaign terms. And so he's not you know, a clear favorite if he runs again, and it's likely that he will at this point. Uh, and then McCarthy has an age-old problem that has bedeviled uh, Republican leaders in the House for a couple decades now, which is that the House Republican caucus is a you know ramshackle bunch. They're not united around ideology or tactics or outlook. There are some very disruptive members. Madam Speaker, today I am calling for the creation of a formal commission to investigate the true origin of COVID-19, the role Fauci played in its creation, the false statements he made to members of Congress under oath, and why the hell Americans are funding the torture of puppies in Africa. Americans deserve the truth, and this demon doctor must never be allowed to escape justice. And some members who are much more moderate from suburban districts. Like most Americans, I'm frustrated that six months after a deadly insurrection breached the United States Capitol for several hours on live television, we still don't know exactly what happened. Why? because many in my party have treated this as just another partisan fight. And there haven't been a lot of examples of Republican leaders in the House who've been able to keep Republican members all rowing in the same direction. And, and that could be a real problem for McCarthy, could be a problem for Trump if, if fights break out among Republicans. And it, and it could be a bigger problem if Republicans end up with just a narrow majority like uh, Democrats now have, where they really need all the votes to get anything done. So let's move back a little bit. Can we talk about who Kevin McCarthy is and what his history in Washington has been like? Sure. Kevin McCarthy, born and raised in Bakersfield, California, son of a fireman, was a small businessman when he was very young, got lucky, won a, a relatively small but significant lottery prize when the California lottery opened. And out of college, growing up in the Central Valley in California, applied for an internship from his local congressman, Bill Thomas, in his 20s, was rejected from the internship, but then found his way into a job and, and became a driver for the congressman and worked his way up to the point that he was elected uh, as a state legislature in California and then elected minority leader of the California House. And when Thomas retired, he announced he was running for that seat, which brought him to Washington 
And so McCarthy was elected in 2006 and came to Washington in 2007 and immediately tried to position himself much like he had positioned himself in the State House of California as a leadership candidate, as someone who could raise money, who was a strategist, who could work with other members. As the member said, I am a new member from California, but I'm not new to this House. I had the um, pleasure of serving Mr. Thomas, who had served as um, the chairman of House Administration in 1995. I know the work that was done and the respect for this House on both sides of the aisle. I never question the, the respect for this institution on either side. He sort of has the vibe of a high school football coach, loves working with people, making them feel good, is a great handshake politician, constantly on the phone with his members. And ever since then, he's been sort of rising through the ranks. And after Paul Ryan retired, he stepped up to become the minority leader. And he forged in the 2020 cycle a very close relationship with President Trump, which allowed for a, a, a pretty successful cycle for Republicans in the House. Republicans actually picked up about 15 seats, if you include one independent, sort of bucking the conventional wisdom. And that's why they're as well positioned as they are now to, to retake Congress next year. And so that really raised his reputation in the party. Now, if the Republicans win back the House in 2022 and McCarthy does become speaker, which is likely based on what we talked about, will he have to continue to toe this line or might the results of the 2022 elections dictate the future of the party enough that McCarthy will be sort of forced to choose a side? So the story of Kevin McCarthy this year has been one of going back and forth. You know, even last year, he, he declared shortly after the election that President Trump had won, even though the results didn't show that, sort of towing the Trump line. And President Trump won this election. So everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. Do not be, do not be silent about this. We cannot allow this to happen before our very eyes. We unite together. And then reversed himself on that. Well, first of all, the conference will decide, but I don't think anybody is questioning the legitimacy of the presidential election. I think that is all over with. We're sitting here with the president today. Um, so from that point of view, I don't think that's a problem. He reversed himself on whether he supported this fact-finding investigation. And the president's immediate action also deserves congressional action, which is why I think a fact-finding commission and a censure resolution would be prudent. Unfortunately, that is not where we are today. He has gone to visit President Trump. I mean, he has clearly done a lot of things to show his fidelity to Trump and also his concern about showing too much fidelity to Trump. And I think almost certainly that is likely to continue next year, absent, you know, a massive majority in the House, because the Speaker still serves at the pleasure of his or her members. And there is a significant share of the House Republican caucus that are all in for President Trump. So if, if McCarthy breaks with Trump in any significant way as the speaker, he could very easily lose his ability to have a governing majority or one that functions very well. So I think Trump's leverage over McCarthy will continue. And, and McCarthy's attempts to have leverage over Trump may continue as well, although you could also see them grow smaller after the midterms are over. Well, that brings up an interesting question about the leader of the party at this moment. I think McCarthy is trying to sell himself as that. I think many who are observing things think that Trump actually has a stronghold on the party and therefore is the leader of the party at the moment. Who, based on your reporting and your assessment of, of what's happening in the Republican Party right now, who is the leader? 
President Trump is by far more powerful right now in the Republican Party than Kevin McCarthy. I, I wouldn't say either of them are the leader. It's a it's a diverse and complicated party with lots of different power centers. You know, Mitch McConnell in the Senate is obviously still a significant power center. But Trump casts a shadow on everyone else. And that's his fundraising ability, his ability to grab the spotlight, his ability to hold these rallies, his ability to continue to sort of drive the storylines of the party. I do think, though, McCarthy has had a significant impact on the party and on Trump and, and convincing Trump of you know, so the most important pitch he has made to Trump successfully so far this year is that the best thing Trump can have for a possible 2024 return to the White House is a big victory in the midterms. I mean, Trump continues to have the imaginations of Republican voters and small dollar donors. Even if you look right now at how the National Republican Senatorial Committee or the National Republican Congressional Committee are raising money online, they're selling Trump merchandise. They're using Trump in their ads. We haven't seen anything like that, definitely in our lifetimes. All right, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. After the break, we'll hear about the internal challenges for the GOP and what that all means for 2022. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Former President Trump lost the White House, the House, and the Senate for the GOP all in one election. And yet, as Michael says, he still holds so much power over the party, which got me wondering why. Do former presidents usually have so much influence over their party after defeat? I pose that question to Lee Drutman of the think tank New America. Traditionally, parties have had popular presidents. Obama was certainly very popular, but Obama didn't really get involved in intra-democratic fights. He did what most former presidents have done, which is they go off and kind of make themselves scarce. And then when it comes time for election season, they stump on behalf of a few candidates. New America is a left-of-center think tank in Washington, D.C., and Lee is a senior fellow in their political reform program. He explained how Trump has maintained his hold on the Republican Party. What's unique about Trump is his unwillingness to step away from the fray. What Donald Trump has done is he's put himself in the center of many upcoming Republican versus Republican primaries, and he's made loyalty to himself and this narrative of a stolen election the central litmus test of what it means to be a Republican in 2021. And that is something that no president has ever done before. So then how does McCarthy walk this tightrope between keeping Trump happy and also moving the party forward to reclaim control of Congress? McCarthy is in an unenviable position, as are all party leaders in American politics today, which is trying to corral a, an incredibly big and confusing tent of folks who have a lot of disparate views. And in the Republican Party in particular, McCarthy is trying to keep Trump and those folks who are extremely loyal to Trump enthusiastic about the Republican Party while also trying to reassure some of the folks who are pretty wary of, of Trump who have 
you know, long been Republican voters and might vote Republican again, but probably supported Biden. There's it's not, not a ton of those voters, but they do make essentially the balance of power in U.S. elections. So if after the 2022 elections, we see this influx of very Trumpy and very Trump-like candidates in the House, is there any room for traditional conservatism in the GOP? Traditional conservatism is dead. Uh, I mean, what what the GOP has become is it's become a, a party of grievance, uh, a party of objection to liberalism, which in many ways it, it always has been, and in many respects, a kind of cult of Trumpism and just sort of this fighting anti-system, anti-science, anti-whatever liberals are for, and that's not, not going to change for a while. I mean, there is no traditional conservatism left in the Republican Party. By traditional conservatives, you mean sort of restraint and limited government and, and humility. Over the past few years, Lee has been making a push for getting rid of the two-party system in U.S. politics. He wrote the book Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. And in it, he says Americans across the political spectrum who reject the extremism need to come together and unless we do so, our democracy is facing a predictable demise. So predictable, in fact, that he wrote these words in a Vox article published in 2017. It's December 2020, and President Donald Trump has still refused to concede that he lost the tumultuous presidential election. Even though the incumbent held on to the Rust Belt states that he had gained in 2016, record high minority turnout gave his opponent narrow wins in Arizona, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. Democrats also narrowly took back both the House and the Senate with razor-thin pickups in North Carolina and Georgia. The urban-rural partisan divide continued to widen, and for the first time in American history, a majority of the Democrats' voters were non-white. In that article, Lee predicts Kamala Harris is actually the one to defeat Trump. But aside from that, most of his other predictions were pretty spot on. Yeah, that, that was one that I unfortunately got right. And things are getting worse, for sure. There is a, a failure to accept the opposition party as the legitimate opposition, which is a fundamental foundational value of democracy. You have now a Republican Party in which voters and elected politicians largely say that, that the Democrats stole the election. They, they view the uh, Democrats as frauds. And uh, under such circumstances, parties are willing to break the norms and break the traditions and break the rules of free and fair elections. And once you lose that, you wind up without a democracy. Instead, you have violence and authoritarianism. And unfortunately, that, that is the direction that we are headed because you have, again, political party, which continues to foster this grievance politics and encourage, in many cases, these attacks on the basic foundation of our democracy, which is elections, and also the, the people who run elections, election administrators, who are, in many ways, the, the true heroes of our democracy. So are we inevitably on this path? Is there a way to, to write this? Well, nothing is inevitable. I, I argue in my book that the way out is to expand the number of parties so that 
the center-right, which still exists, there is still a pro-democracy center-right, can have a political party that is not the Donald Trump liberal authoritarian Republican Party and win some elections and have a governing coalition with the parties on the left. And for folks who don't want to be Democrats or don't want to vote for Democrats, there's only one alternative, and that is the Republican Party. So everything involves keeping the party together and demonizing your opponent, which creates this doom loop, this reinforcing cycle of negative partisanship, of extreme attacks, and a fundamental, crucial, foundational aspect of democracy is the idea that parties can lose elections and opposition can be legitimate. The idea of a multi-party system, though, has been discussed for, for years, and it seems like modern consensus is that it's it's ex- extremely unlikely that the U.S. would turn to a multi-party system. Do you disagree with that? Well, I, I do disagree with that. One, it's something that most Americans want. Consistently, 60 to 70 percent of Americans say they want more parties. Almost 50 percent of Americans choose to identify as independents, thus rejecting the, the two major parties. For a long time, we had something much closer to a multi-party system within our two-party system with liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats alongside conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats, something much closer to a four-party system. And you know, that, that worked pretty well for a while, that allowed for a lot of broad compromise in a lot of landmark productive legislation, good system of checks and balances. And you know, that, that was really at its high point, I'd say, from the mid-60s through the late 80s. And that began to collapse in the 90s, and it's been steadily collapsing for the last 30 years into a, a flattened two-party system in which both parties are playing this game of inches, uh, not giving anything, and we keep digging ourselves deeper and deeper in into this ditch. And really the only thing that would get us out of it is a truce that essentially blows up the two-party system. So I'm going to ask you one question that I imagine you might be reluctant to answer, but we saw how accurate your predictions from 2017 were about the 2020 elections. Do you have any predictions for 2022 or 2024, how you expect things to play out? Well, at this point, I'd say the smart money is on Republicans taking back the House and probably the Senate. And I think that the next several years of American politics are, are going to be increasingly chaotic, increasingly fraught and dangerous. All of the trends pushing us towards violence in the 2020 election are just getting worse and worse. I I am optimistic that at the end of it, we'll come out of this with a much improved democracy. But I I really fear it's one of these things where it's going to have to get worse before it can get better. All right, we'll have to watch and see. Lee, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed this conversation very much. One quick thing before you go, I wanted to mention another Washington Post podcast episode that I thought Can He Do That listeners in particular might find pretty interesting. On the Post's podcast from our opinions team called Please Go On, the host James Homan had a conversation with Robert Kagan. Kagan, who once advised the presidential campaigns of John McCain and Mitt Romney, he warns that the United States is in the midst of its greatest constitutional crisis since the Civil War. Republicans have chosen to defend the actions on January 6th, to to make martyrs out of both the people who died and the people who have been arrested. It's driven the party closer to Trump in terms of serving his interests. 
Now, if you've listened to Kenny do that for a long time, you've certainly heard the term constitutional crisis. We'll hear an expert unpack why he thinks we're there now. You can listen to Please Go On wherever you get your podcasts. And both Please Go On and Can He Do That are podcasts that are made possible because of the support of our subscribers. So if you're thinking about subscribing to The Post, here is the extra nudge you've been waiting for. Find a great deal at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Sharla Freeland and Arjun Singh with logo art by Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.